Section 7F Legal Issues Evolution of the Military Justice System The strength of the military depends on disciplined service members ready to fight and win our nation's wars. Military justice strengthens national security by providing commanders with an efficient and effective means of maintaining good order and discipline. Furthermore, the military justice system is a separate criminal justice system that does not look to the civilian courts to dispose of disciplinary problems. As a separate system, it allows the military to handle unique military crimes that civilian courts would be unable to handle. In addition, a separate system enables the military to address crimes committed by service members at worldwide locations in time of war or peace. The military needs a justice system that goes wherever the troops go to provide uniform treatment regardless of locale or circumstances. No other judicial system in the U.S. provides such expansive coverage. As our separate military justice system has evolved, this system has balanced two basic interests, discipline, essential to warfighting capability, and justice, a fair and impartial system essential to the morale of those serving their country. While military justice can be traced to the time of the Roman armies, the historical foundation for the U.S. military law and criminal justice system is the British Articles of War. In fact, the first codes predated the U.S. Constitution and Declaration of Independence. These codes were the Articles of War, applicable to the Army, and the Articles for the Government of the Navy. Through World War I, these codes went through some amendments and revisions, but were substantially unchanged for more than 100 years. Throughout most of this time, the U.S. had a very small standing military. Those who entered the military understood they were going to fall under a different system of justice with unique procedures and punishments. While some people had bad experiences with the military justice system during this time, there was no overwhelming demand for change. This changed with World War II, when the U.S. had over 16 million men and women serving in the U.S. armed forces. Incredibly, there were about 2 million court-martialed during hostilities. There were approximately 80,000 general court-martialed during World War II. An average of more than 60 general court-martial convictions occurred per day for the duration of the war. The soldiers and sailors of World War II were regular citizens who volunteered or were drafted. Many of these citizens had some very unpleasant experiences with the military justice system, which looked quite different than today. The military justice system did not offer members the protections afforded by the civilian court system, and many American citizens disapproved of the way criminal laws were being applied in the military. Following the war, many organizations studied and made proposals to improve the military criminal legal system, and Congress conducted hearings on the military justice system. After unification of the armed services under the Department of Defense in 1947, Secretary James V. Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense, decided there should not be separate criminal law rules for the different branches of service. He desired a uniform code that would apply to all services and address the abuses from World War II. His efforts set the stage for a new uniform system of discipline. In 1950, Congress enacted the UCMJ. This legislation is contained in Title 10, United States Code, Section 801, through 946. The UCMJ is the military's criminal code applicable to all branches of service. The UCMJ became effective in 1951 and provided substantial procedural guarantees of an open and fair process that continues today. The UCMJ required attorneys to represent the accused and the government in all general court-martial, prohibited improper command influence, and created the appellate court system. Furthermore, 
The UCMJ established Air Force, Army, Navy, and Coast Guard Boards of Review as the first level of appeal in the military justice system and the U.S. Court of Military Appeals as the second level of appeal. The Court of Military Appeals, composed of five civilian judges, was perhaps the most revolutionary change that brought the checks and balances of civilian control of the U.S. armed forces into the military justice system. In October 1994, the Court of Military Appeals was renamed the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces to bring the name more in line with our civilian counterparts. In addition to changing court-martial processes and procedures, the UCMJ provided a complete set of criminal laws. Moreover, the UCMJ included many crimes punished under civilian law, for example, murder, rape, drug use, larceny, drunk driving, etc., and also punished other conduct that affects good order and discipline. These unique military crimes include such offenses as desertion, absence without leave, disrespect towards superiors, failure to obey orders, dereliction of duty, wrongful disposition of military property, drunk on duty, malingering, and conduct unbecoming an officer. The UCMJ also included provisions punishing misbehavior before the enemy, improper use of countersign, misbehavior of a sentinel, misconduct as a prisoner, aiding the enemy, spying, and espionage. The UCMJ has been amended on a number of occasions. For example, the Military Justice Act of 1968 created the position of military judge, authorized trial by military judge alone, required an attorney to act as defense counsel in all special court-martials when the authorized punishment included a bad conduct discharge, prohibited trial by summary court-martial if the accused objected, and changed service boards of review to courts of review. The next significant change was the Military Justice Act of 1983, which streamlined pre-trial and post-trial procedures. The act also provided for direct appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court for the Court of Military Appeals in appropriate cases, without the need to first pursue an appeal through the civilian appellate courts. The act also established a separate punitive article, 112A, for drug offenses. Today's UCMJ reflects centuries of experience in criminal law and military justice and guarantees service members rights and privileges similar to and in many cases greater than those enjoyed by civilians. Constitutional Underpinnings Two provisions in the U.S. Constitution grant powers to the legislative and executive branches providing the legal foundation for our military justice system. Powers Granted to Congress The U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, provides that Congress is empowered to declare war, raise and support armies, provide and maintain a navy, make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, provide for calling forth the militia, and organize, arm, and discipline the militias, and govern such part of them as may be employed in the service of the U.S. Congress is also responsible for all laws deemed necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by the U.S. Constitution in the U.S. government. Congress has exercised their responsibilities over military justice by enacting the UCMJ. Authority Granted to the President The U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, provides that the President serves as Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Armed Forces and of the Militia of the States, National Guard, when called to federal service. By virtue of authority as a Commander-in-Chief, the President has the power to issue executive orders to govern the U.S. Armed Forces as long as these orders do not conflict with any basic constitutional or statutory provisions. 
Article 36, UCMJ, specifically authorizes the President to prescribe the procedures, including rules of evidence, to be followed in court-martial. In accordance with Article 36, UCMJ, President Harry S. Truman established the Manual for Court-Martial in 1951 to implement the UCMJ. The Manual for Court-Martial, like the UCMJ, has undergone a number of revisions. Jurisdiction of Military Courts Court-martial jurisdiction is concerned with the question of personal jurisdiction. Is the accused a person subject to the UCMJ? And subject matter jurisdiction. Is the conduct prohibited by the UCMJ? If the answer is yes in both instances, then and only then does a court-martial have jurisdiction to decide the case. Personal Jurisdiction Personal jurisdiction involves status, that is, the accused must possess the legal status of a service member or a person otherwise subject to the UCMJ before personal jurisdiction can attach. Article 2, UCMJ, includes the following as persons subject to court-martial jurisdiction. 1. Members of a regular component of the armed forces, including those awaiting discharge after expiration of their terms of enlistment. 2. Cadets, aviation cadets, and midshipmen. 3. Members of a reserve component while on inactive duty training, but in the case of members of the Army National Guard and Air National Guard, only when in federal service. 4. Retired members of a regular component of the armed forces who are entitled to pay. 5. Persons in custody of the armed forces serving a sentence imposed by court-martial. 6. Prisoners of war in custody of the armed forces, and seven, in time of declared war or a contingency operation, persons serving with or accompanying an armed force in the field. While the UCMJ previously provided for jurisdiction over civilians serving with or accompanying an armed force in the field in time of war, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces held that the phrase, in time of war, meant a war formally declared by Congress. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces decided this issue in reviewing a case, U.S. v. Everetti, 1970, in which a civilian had been tried during the Vietnam conflict for crimes committed within the combat zone. In the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2007, Congress amended Article 2A.10 to provide for UCMJ jurisdiction over civilians serving with or accompanying an armed force in the field in time of declared war or a contingency operation. Subject Matter Jurisdiction Court-martial have the power to try any offense under the Code except when prohibited from doing so by the U.S. Constitution. Court-martial have exclusive jurisdiction when a purely military offense such as desertion, failure to obey orders, or disrespect towards superiors is involved. However, if the offense violates both the UCMJ and a civilian code, concurrent jurisdiction may exist. For example, if an regular Air Force military member is caught shoplifting at an off-base merchant, the member can be tried by court-martial for larceny in violation of Article 121 UCMJ and tried by a civilian court for a larceny offense recognized in the local jurisdiction. The determination as to whether a military or a civilian authority will try the member is normally made through consultation or prior agreement between appropriate military authorities, ordinarily the staff judge advocate, and appropriate civilian authorities. A member to be tried by both a court-martial and a state court for the same act is constitutionally permissible and a member who has been tried by a state court normally will not be tried by court-martial for the same act. 
Only the Secretary of the Air Force may approve such prosecutions, and only in the most unusual cases, when the ends of justice and discipline can be met in no other way. Commander Involvement Military commanders are responsible for maintaining law and order in the communities over which they have authority and for maintaining the discipline of the fighting force. Reports of crimes may come from law enforcement or criminal investigative agencies, as well as reports from supervisors or individual service members. One of the commander's greatest powers in the administration of military justice is the exercise of discretion, to decide how misconduct committed by a member of his or her command will be resolved. Each commander in the chain of command has independent, yet overlapping discretion to dispose of offenses within the limits of that officer's authority. A commander may dispose of the case by taking no action, initiating administrative action against the member, offering the member non-judicial punishment under Article 15, UCMJ, or preferring court-martial charges. Ordinarily, the immediate commander determines how to dispose of an offense. However, a superior commander may withhold that authority. The staff judge advocate is available to provide advice, but the commander ultimately decides how to dispose of alleged misconduct. If a commander believes preferred charges should be disposed by court-martial, the charges are forwarded to the convening authority. Convening authorities are superior commanders or officials who possess the authority to convene specific levels of court-martial, wing, and numbered Air Force commanders in most cases. A convening authority convenes a court-martial by issuing an order that charges previously preferred against an accused will be tried by a specified court-martial. The convening authority must personally make the decision to refer a case to trial. Delegation of this authority is not allowed. Charges may be referred to one of the three types of court-martial, summary, special, or general. Roles of the parties in the adversarial system. In court-martial, both government and the accused have legal counsel. In addition, detailed defense counsel must include judge advocates, graduates of an accredited law school, and members of the bar of a federal court or the highest court of a state. Moreover, counsel must have certification to perform duties by a services judge advocate general. The trial counsel prosecutes in the name of the U.S. and presents evidence against the accused. The defense counsel represents the accused and zealously seeks to protect the accused's rights. Trial counsel Trial counsel are similar to prosecutors in civilian criminal trials. They represent the government, and their objective is justice, not merely securing a conviction. They zealously present evidence they believe is admissible and seek to persuade the court that the accused committed the alleged offenses. Trial counsel argues the inferences most strongly supporting the charges. Highly experienced trial advocates, senior trial counsel, are available to assist in the prosecution of particularly complex court-martial. Trial counsel also presents evidence and arguments to address defenses raised on behalf of the accused. Trial counsel may not ethically permit the continuance of the cause of action against the accused knowing the charges are not supported by probable cause. Additionally, trial counsel have an affirmative duty to disclose to the defense any evidence that negates the accused's guilt, mitigates the degree of guilt, or reasonably tends to reduce the punishment of the accused. No person who has acted as accuser one who prefers charges, preliminary hearing officer, military judge, or court member in any case may act later as trial counsel or assistant trial counsel in the same case. No person who has acted for the prosecution may act later in the same case for the defense, nor may any person who has acted for the defense act later in the same case for the prosecution. 
Defense Counsel Representation In a trial by court-martial, the accused is entitled to an area defense counsel free of charge. The accused may also hire a civilian lawyer at his or her own expense. An accused may request representation by a particular military lawyer, and this officer will serve if he or she is reasonably available. Defense counsel will zealously, within the bounds of the law, guard the interests of the accused. Military Judge A military trial judge presides over each open session of the court-martial. Military trial judges are selected from highly qualified, experienced judge advocates. Like defense counsel, military judges are assigned to the Air Force Legal Operations Agency and do not report to anyone at base level. No person is eligible to act as military judge in a case if he or she was the accuser, is a witness for the prosecution, or has acted as preliminary hearing officer or a counsel in the same case. The military judge of a court-martial may not consult with the members of the court except in the presence of the accused, trial counsel, and defense counsel. Nor does he or she vote with the members of the court. In non-capital cases, an accused may elect to be tried by military judge alone. If such an election is made, the military judge will make a finding of guilty or non-guilty and, if guilty, determine the sentence. Court Members Members detailed to a court-martial are those persons who, in the opinion of the convening authority, are best qualified for the duty by reason of their age, education, training, experience, length of service, and judicial temperament. Court panels are normally only composed of officers senior to the accused. If the accused is enlisted and makes a timely request that enlisted members be included on the court, the panel must consist of at least one-third enlisted personnel. Court members determine whether the accused has been proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and, if guilty, a judge, decide, a proper sentence based on the evidence and according to the instructions of the military judge. No member may use grade or position to influence another member. Voting is done by secret written ballot. Ethical Standards Both trial and defense counsels are bound by the ethical standards detailed in AFI 51-110, Professional Responsibility Program. These standards cover a variety of matters. For example, counsel may not present testimony known to be perjured or other evidence known to be false, intentionally misrepresent any piece of evidence or matter of law, unnecessarily delay or prolong the proceedings, obstruct communications between prospective witnesses and counsel for the other side, use illegal means or condone the use of illegal means to obtain evidence, inject his or her own personal opinions or beliefs into arguments to the court, appeal to passion or prejudice, attempt to influence court members by currying favor or communicating privately with them, post-trial matters and appellate review, post-trial matters. The convening authority must act on every case. When taking action on a case, the convening authority must consider the results of trial, written recommendation of the staff judge advocate when required, and written matters submitted by the accused and any victim named in a charge of which the accused was convicted. Convening authorities may also consider the record of trial, personal records of the accused, and other matters they deem appropriate. Pursuant to Article 60 UCMJ, the convening authority has limited authority to disapprove the findings or sentence. The convening authority may, but is not required to, grant clemency on the findings. If the convening authority so chooses, some clemency on findings may be given, subject to regulatory and statutory limitations. 
the convening authority must provide a written explanation for such action. Regardless of the offenses charged, the convening authority may not disapprove, commute, or suspend in whole or in part an adjudged sentence of confinement for more than six months or a punitive discharge unless exceptions apply. Appellate Review Following the convening authority's action is appellate review. The type of appellate review depends on the adjudged and approved sentence. The Judge Advocate General is the review authority in general court-martial cases where the sentence does not include death, dismissal, punitive discharge, or confinement for one year or more. The Judge Advocate General may also elect to certify, refer, any case reviewed by the Judge Advocate General's office to the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals. The Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals is an independent appellate judicial body authorized by Congress and established by the Judge Advocate General pursuant to direction of Title 10, United States Code, Section 866A, 1994. The Court hears and decides appeals of Air Force Court Martial convictions and appeals during litigation. The Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals appellate judges are judge advocates appointed by the Judge Advocate General. Unless appellate review is waived by an appellant, the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals automatically reviews all cases involving a sentence that includes death, dismissal, a punitive discharge, or confinement for one year or more. However, appellate review cannot be waived in death penalty cases. In this forum, the appellant is approved by a military counsel, free of charge, who is an experienced trial advocate and a full-time appellate counsel. Civilian appellate counsel may be retained at the appellant's own expense. The government is represented by appellate government counsel. The Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals must consist of a panel of at least three military judges, reviews the case for legal error, and determines if the record of trial supports both the findings and sentence as approved by the convening authority. The Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals has the power to dismiss the case, change a finding of guilty to one of not guilty, reduce the sentence, or order a rehearing. However, the appeal may not change a finding of not guilty to one of guilty. The Judge Advocate General instructs convening authorities to take action according to the court's decisions. If the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals rules against the appellant, he or she may request review by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces must review all death penalty cases and any other case directed by the Judge Advocates General of each service. Review in other cases is discretionary upon petition of the appellant and upon good cause shown. Air Force Appellate Defense Counsel are appointed to represent the appellant before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. If an appellant's case is reviewed and relief is not granted by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, the appellant may petition the Supreme Court of the U.S. for further review. The Secretary of the Air Force automatically reviews cases involving dismissal of an Air Force officer or cadet. Dismissal is a punishment that punitively separates officers from the service. The dismissal cannot be executed until the secretary or appointed designee approves the sentence. If the sentence extends to death, the individual cannot be put to death until the president approves this part of the sentence. The president has clemency powers over all court-martial cases and may commute, remit, or suspend any portion of the sentence. However, the president may not suspend the part of the sentence that provides for death. Punitive Articles This paragraph focuses on unique military offenses that do not have a counterpart in civilian law. Absence Offenses For an armed force to be effective, they must have sufficient members present to carry out the mission. One way this can be accomplished is by deterring members from being absent without authority. 
whether the absences are permanent or temporary. The circumstances under which the absence occurs, as well as the intent of the accused, determines the severity of the offense. Absence offenses include desertion and being absent without leave. Desertion. Article 85 UCMJ may occur under the following categories. 1. Unauthorized absence with the intent to remain away permanently. 2. Quitting the unit or place of duty to avoid hazardous duty or shirk important service. Or 3. Desertion by an officer before notice of acceptance of resignation. More severe punishment is authorized if the desertion is terminated by apprehension instead of a voluntary surrender, or if the desertion occurs in wartime. Desertion may be charged as a capital offense, which authorizes the death penalty during wartime. Absence with a specific intent to remain away permanently is the most commonly charged type of desertion. The unauthorized absence may be from the accused's place of duty, unit, or organization. The specific intent to remain away permanently may exist at the beginning of the absence or may be formed at any time during the absence. Thus, when a member leaves without permission, intending to return after a period of time, but later decides never to return, the member has committed the offense of desertion. However, proving intent is often difficult and may be shown by a number of factors, including the length of absence, use of an alias, disposal of military identification and clothing items, concealment of military status, distance from duty station, and the assumption of a permanent type civilian status or employment. The accused's voluntary return to military control is not a defense to desertion. The essential issue is whether the accused, at any time, formed the intent to remain away permanently. Absent without leave. Article 86 UCMJ addresses other cases where the member is not at the place where he or she is required to be at a prescribed time. This includes failure to go to the appointed place of duty, going from the appointed place of duty, absence from unit, organization, or other place of duty, abandoning watch or guard, and absence with intent to avoid maneuvers or field exercises. Proving a failure to go to an appointed place of duty requires showing the accused actually knew he or she was required to be at the appointed place of duty at the prescribed time. The offense of going from the appointed place of duty requires proof the accused left his or her place of duty without proper authority, rather than failing to report in the first place. The accused must have reported for and begun the duty before leaving without proper authority. Absence from the unit, organization, or other place of duty is a common absent without leave charge. The authorized maximum punishment for this offense varies with the duration of the absence. Inability to return from leave is a defense if the accused encountered unforeseeable circumstances beyond his or her control. For example, if Technical Sergeant Jane Doe's authorized 10-day period of leave expired on 1 December and she failed to report to her unit until 3 December, she would not be guilty of absent without leave if she could establish she was at a distant city and had purchased an airline ticket on a flight that was canceled due to a blizzard. Even though she has a defense, she is not excused from calling her unit and requesting an extension of leave. Inability would not be a defense where a military member took space-available transportation to Europe while on leave and then claimed he or she was unable to return on the date planned because he or she was unable to get space-available transportation back when he or she had hoped. Other absences include abandoning watch or guard and absence from the unit, organization, or place of duty with intent to avoid maneuvers or field exercises. In addition, Article 87, UCMJ, provides that missing a movement is an offense that applies when the member, through neglect or design, misses the movement of a ship, aircraft, or unit.
False Official Statements Article 107 UCMJ covers both the making and signing of false official statements and official documents. An official statement or document is any statement or document made in the line of duty. In the line of duty pertains to a matter within the jurisdiction of any U.S. department or agency. Furthermore, you must be able to prove that the accused knew the statement or document was false and had a specific intent to deceive. Examples include falsely identifying oneself to a base gate guard or falsely listing a person as one's dependent to gain base privileges. However, material gain is not an element of the offense. General Article The General Article, Article 134, is designed to address unspecified offenses punishable because of their effect on the U.S. Armed Forces. Article 134 generally provides for those offenses not specifically mentioned elsewhere in the punitive articles of the UCMJ. A military member can be punished under Article 134 for any and all disorders and neglects that are prejudicial to good order and discipline in the armed forces, for conduct of a nature to bring discredit upon the armed forces, and for crimes and offenses not capital. Disorders and neglects prejudicial to good order and discipline. Article 134 UCMJ seeks to protect the internal operations of the U.S. Armed Forces. The issue is the effect of the accused's act on good order and discipline within the armed forces. The effect must be reasonably direct and tangible. Disorders and neglects prejudicial to good order and discipline include breach of customs of the service, fraternization, impersonating an officer, disorderly conduct, gambling with a subordinate, and incapacitating oneself for duty through prior indulgence in intoxicating liquors. Conduct of a nature to bring discredit upon the armed forces. The concern here is the potential effect of the accused's act on the reputation of the U.S. armed forces, how the military is perceived by the civilian sector. The conduct must tend to bring the service into disrepute or lower it in public esteem. Thus, violations of local civil law or foreign law may be punished if they bring discredit upon the armed forces, such as dishonorable failure to pay debts, indecent exposure, fleeing the scene of an accident, bigamy, adultery, or pandering. Crimes and offenses not capital. Acts or omissions not chargeable under other articles of the UCMJ, but are crimes or offenses under federal statutes, are charged under Article 134. For example, counterfeiting. This crime is not specifically listed in the UCMJ, but is still a violation of federal law. Also, if a military member commits an act in an area over which the military exercises exclusive or concurrent jurisdiction with the state and no UCMJ article or federal law prohibits the act, only the law of the state prohibits the act, then the Federal Assimilative Crimes Act allows the member to be tried by a court-martial under Article 134. Offenses Related to War the UCMJ includes a number of offenses related to war. These offenses include misbehaving before the enemy, aiding the enemy, compelling surrender, improperly using countersigns, mishandling captured or abandoned property, committing misconduct as a prisoner of war, and making disloyal statements. Two especially egregious offenses related to war are misbehavior before the enemy and misconduct as a prisoner of war. Misbehavior before the enemy Article 99 UCMJ provides that running away before the enemy and cowardly conduct are capital offenses punishable by death. The term enemy, as used in running away before the enemy, includes both civilian and military organized forces of the enemy in time of war and any opposing hostile bodies including rebellious mobs or bands of renegades. 
the term is not restricted to the enemy government or their armed forces. If the misbehavior were caused by fear, the offense is charged as cowardly conduct rather than running away. Whether a person is before the enemy is not a question of definite distance, but one of tactical relation. The critical element in the offense of cowardly conduct is fear that results in the abandonment or refusal to perform one's duty. Fear is a natural apprehension going into battle, and the mere display of apprehension does not constitute this offense. Cowardice is misbehavior motivated by fear. Genuine or extreme illness or other disability at the time of the alleged misbehavior may be a defense. Misconduct as a prisoner of war. Article 105 UCMJ recognizes two types of offenses arising in prisoner of war situations. One offense involves unauthorized conduct by an accused who secures favorable treatment to the detriment of other prisoners. The other offense prohibits maltreatment of a prisoner of war by a person in a position of authority. The purpose of this article is to protect all persons held as prisoners, whether military or civilian and regardless of their nationality. Insubordination Insubordination conduct may be expressed in many different ways and toward many different persons in the military community. Insubordination is judged both by the means used and the relative relationship in the military hierarchy of the parties involved. Article 89 UCMJ prohibits disrespectful acts or language used toward a superior commissioned officer in his or her capacity as an officer or as a private individual. Therefore, the superior commissioned officer does not need to be in the execution of his or her office at the time of the disrespectful behavior. However, it must be established that the accused knew the person against whom the acts or words were directed was the accused's superior commissioned officer. Disrespect may include neglecting the customary salute or showing a marked disdain, indifference, insolence, impertinence, undue familiarity, or other rudeness toward the superior officer. Truth is no defense. A superior commissioned officer is one who is superior in rank or command. Article 91 UCMJ similarly prohibits insubordinate conduct toward a warrant officer, NCO, or petty officer. However, unlike Article 89 violations, the insubordinate conduct must occur while the individual being disrespected is in the execution of his or her duties. In addition, Article 91 does not require a superior-subordinate relationship as an element of the prescribed offense and can only be committed by enlisted members. Another form of insubordination involves striking or assaulting a superior officer. Article 901 UCMJ prohibits assaults and batteries against superior commissioned officers in the execution of their duties. Article 91 prohibits similar conduct toward warrant officers, NCOs, and petty officers. And the execution of his office includes any act or service the officer is required or authorized to do by statute, regulation, orders, or customs. An essential element is the accused's knowledge that the person is a superior officer or superior warrant officer, NCO, or petty officer. In time of war, striking a superior commissioned officer can be a capital offense. Disobedience Offenses Disobeying a Superior Officer Article 902 UCMJ prohibits the intentional or willful disobedience of the lawful orders of a superior officer. Failure to Obey Orders or Regulations Article 92 UCMJ provides that members are subject to court-martial if they 1. Violate or fail to obey any lawful general order or regulation. 2. Have knowledge of a lawful order issued by a member of the armed forces, which is their duty to obey, fail to obey the order. Or 3. Are derelict in the performance of their duties. Lawful General Order or Regulation 
This term relates to general orders or regulations that are properly published by the President, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of a Military Department, an officer having general court-martial jurisdiction, a general officer in command, or a commander superior to one of the former. A squadron commander does not have the authority to issue general orders. Once issued, a general order or regulation remains in effect even if a subsequent commander assumes command. Knowledge of the order is not an element of the offense, and a lack of knowledge is not a defense. Only those general orders or regulations that are punitive are enforceable under Article 921. A punitive order or regulation specifically states a member may be punished under the UCMJ if violated. Regulations that only supply general guidelines or advice for conducting military functions are not punitive and cannot be enforced under Article 921. Other Lawful Orders or Regulations This offense includes violations of written regulations that are not general regulations. The key requirements are that the accused had a duty to obey the order and had actual knowledge of the order. Such knowledge is usually proven through circumstantial evidence. The accused cannot be convicted of this offense merely because he or she should have known about the order. Failure to obey a wing-level directive that prohibits overnight guests in the dormitory is an example. Dereliction of duty Dereliction of duty is comprised of three elements. 1. The accused had certain duties. 2. The accused knew or reasonably should have known of the duties. And 3. The accused was derelict in performing the duties either by willfully failing to carry them out or by carrying them out in a negligent or culpably inefficient manner. Willfully means performing an act knowingly and purposely while specifically intending the natural and probable consequences of the act. Negligently means an act or omission of a person who is under a duty to use due care that exhibits a lack of this degree of care that a reasonably prudent person would have exercised under the same or similar circumstances. Culpable inefficiency means an inefficiency for which there is no reasonable or just excuse. Merely being inept in the performance of duty will not support a charge of dereliction of duty, that is, Officers or enlisted members cannot be punished for inadequate performance if they make a good-faith effort but fall short because of a lack of aptitude or ability. Such performance may be grounds for administrative demotion or administrative discharge, but is not a crime. Lawfulness of Orders A lawful order must be 1. Reasonably in furtherance of or connected to military needs. 2 specific as to time and place, and definite and certain in describing the thing or act to be done or omitted, and three, not otherwise contrary to established law or regulation. An order is in furtherance of or connected to military needs when it involves activities reasonably necessary to accomplish a military mission or to safeguard or promote the morale, discipline, and usefulness of command. Such an order may interfere with private rights or personal affairs, provided a valid military purpose exists. Furthermore, the dictates of a person's conscience, religion, or personal philosophy cannot justify or excuse disobedience of an otherwise lawful order. An order requiring the performance of a military duty or act may be inferred to be lawful and is disobeyed at the peril of the subordinate. This inference does not apply to a patently illegal order, such as one that directs the commission of a crime. An accused cannot be punished for disobeying or failing to obey an unlawful order. Conclusion Air Force commanders must continuously evaluate force readiness and organizational efficiency and effectiveness.
The inspection system provides the commander with a credible independent assessment process to measure the capability of assigned forces. Inspectors benchmark best practices and exchange lessons learned and innovative methods. Criminal activity and intelligence operations against the Air Force threaten national security. When Air Force personnel commit criminal offenses, illegal activity occurs on an Air Force installation, or Air Force security is breached or compromised, the Air Force must thoroughly investigate criminal allegations and intelligence threats and refer them to appropriate authorities for action. The mission of the U.S. Air Force is to defend the U.S. and protect its interests through air, space, and cyberspace. Many aspects of carrying out this job involve legal issues. This chapter provides information on the Air Force Inspection System, the Inspector General Complaints Program, individual standards, and punitive actions. All four areas are necessary to enable the Air Force to fulfill our national security obligations efficiently and effectively.